Hello fellow homebrewers, JP here, and I want to introduce to you the brand new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Series available at More Beer. More Beer sells the highest standard in homebrewing equipment, and the Brewbuilt Conicals are just that. They're made from mere polished 304 stainless steel, and they come with loads of features that you and I have been looking for. They have a full 2-inch bottom dump valve, which will eliminate your clogging issues, while the sturdy base includes four reinforced legs, just like those big pro tanks do. More Beer also carries the Brewbuilt line of options and add like casters, pressure kits, and even external glycol chillers. So you can find out more about the new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Uni Tanks by going over to morebeer.com for detailed videos on the entire line of Brewbuilt Conicals. You can trust Brewbuilt with your next fermentation, and you can trust More Beer to find the right conical for you. Brewbuilt at morebeer.com. This special bonus episode of The Session was recorded on February 12th, 2020 at Sierra Nevada Brewing Company's Torpedo Room in Berkeley, California. It was part of a special series of events for Sierra Nevada during San Francisco Beer Week as part of their 40th anniversary celebrations. It features founder Ken Grossman and senior quality advisor and former professor of malting and brewing sciences at UC Davis, Charlie Bamforth. All right. Once again, thanks, everybody, for being here at the uh, Sierra Torpedo Room for our innovation talk today. My name's Justin Crosley. I'm with the Brewing Network, and uh, I was uh, invited to, to do this, which I, I jumped at the chance. Uh, both of these two gentlemen uh, I look up to in the beer industry, and, it, and it's always fun to talk to them. I've gotten a chance to interview them a few times, and it's just it's always a pleasure, and it's very informative and usually entertaining as well. And today we're talking about innovation in brewing, and these two, uh, these two gentlemen are, are the perfect fit for that. Innovation in brewing, I think, especially in in brewing, uh, not just you know as as other industries uh, can be anything as complex as uh, the science of fermentation or as simple as bubbles, as uh, Dr. Bamforth used to say all the time. Uh, Charlie did a lot of uh, research just on carbonation in beer and, and innovations in those fields. And then, of course, Ken Grossman, you know, one of the first uh, craft brewers in the U.S. And, and, and the you know, one of the longest running independent brewers in the U.S. has uh, made innovation in brewing a, a foundation of what they do. So we're going to talk about some different aspects of what that exactly means. Um, and, and, you know, we can get into the nitty gritty. I've got a microphone for you as well. We can ask some questions of our guests a little bit later on also. But we should probably start by talking about the original Sierra Nevada brew house because as beautiful as it is, Ken, a lot of innovation has happened since that was built. Oh, come on. Give me a break. <laughs> that, I should have parked my Volkswagen next to it, my 79 van, because they're kind of in the same vein, right? Yeah. Um, that, so some of that equipment was circa 1965, and it was old dairy vats and um, whatever cookers and uh, things I built. So it's quite old and was never intended to make beer. It was uh, pieced together from a whole variety of, of other industries that made stainless steel equipment. Um, so it's a direct fired kettle. My original burner came out of a, an old bottle washer. It's since been upgraded to something newer, 
but um, it's still direct fired. I was wondering specifically about the burner because uh, Byron, who's still here, he works for Sierra 2, is telling me that the tire started to get a little melty. Yes, we did have a little challenge putting it on wheels. Uh, <laughs> so this is, I don't know if this is the first brew house on wheels, but it is the oldest brew house on wheels. Okay, fair. <laughs> um, so it's direct fired, and yes, uh, the burners did get the tires a little warm. Yeah. Um, it's a, So I'm, I was a home brewer. I, you could call me one. I just haven't done it in a long time. But looking at the burner, it looks like a, a, a homebrew burner, but, you know, 10 times the size. Uh, so the original one I, I robbed out of a bottle washer um, heater that was 600,000 BTUs. And when I sold it to Mad River Brewing, at some point it, my old one corroded away and they replaced it with some modern technology from the 70s. And, and it, it's, it, it's probably, I think it's 400,000 BTUs today. Okay. Um, and it's just a direct-fired uh, burner, and it gets the job done. Okay. Yeah, I just was d- digging around it a little bit. Um, how long was this the brew house for Sierra? So for Sierra, I r- bought it in 1978 and reconfigured it. It was a steam-jacketed kettle when I first bought it, and it had cork insulation, so the the outside jacket is steel, but there was a layer of two inches of cork and then another jacket outside of that when I first bought it. I stripped all that off. It had rusted away, and the steam jacket had corroded, and uh, and then I mounted this um, big burner underneath it. And the stainless, again, is probably 1950s. And it started to crack, and it's cracked probably every year since 1980. Okay. And uh, Mad River told me that every year or so they get a welder in there, and they weld patches. So if, if you look inside, there's patches all over the bottom from wow. ba- being repaired all those years. Um, so I learned how to weld stainless in part so I could weld the cracks that would sure. form in the kettle every month or two or three. You couldn't just call somebody every time. you got to learn no, how to do yeah, that. No, you can't do that in Chico. So yeah. Yeah, we, we didn't have those kind of resources. So you needed to figure out how to weld 1950s vintage stainless steel. The more I learn about this, the more it sounds like my 1979 Volkswagen that's so, parked So I out had there. a 1961 Volkswagen. Okay. So mine predated yours. And I learned how to rebuild my engine, and that was ahead of rebuilding my brew house. Okay. It's, you got to start engineering somewhere. That's right. Uh, but you were not an engineer or even a professional brewer somewhere else before you started with all of this, were you? I was a, a, a hobbyist welder and uh, studied chemistry at Butte College, our local J- junior college, and then moved to Chico State and studied chemistry there. But I took several years of physics, so I, I learned, I, I think, a practical aspect. And then when I started the brewery, I re-enrolled back at the junior college and took, they had welding classes, they had business classes, they had refrigeration. I took two semesters of refrigeration repair. They had business classes and electrical wiring. So I took all those sort of trades in order to learn how to, I thought, what skills I needed to make a brewery. Your whole plan was to make a brewery. Well, when I went back to school, that was the plan. When I first started studying chemistry, that was not the plan. I was a, a home brewer from 1969, and I actually I moved to Chico in 72, and my 
neighborhood friend gave us a still and 50 gallons of oxidized wine okay. and, and said, uh, here you go. Here, here's your, your going to college present was uh, oxidized wine and a still, and you can probably make grappa out of it. Wow. So I would my, have, That's a great present to go to college. Fir- one of my first uh, uh, college chemistry projects was analyzing oxidized wine to see if it was toxic or not. Okay. <laughs> so. I had the privilege of meeting Ken's mom uh, a few years ago. And she looked at him and she said, Kenny, when are you going to finish your degree? <laughs> and, I love and he said, could I finish building the brewery in Mills River first? Yeah, first. <laughs> Still going. Charlie, what were you doing in 78 when he was building a that brewery? That was the year I joined the brewing industry. It was? Uh, yeah. In June 1978, I joined the brewing industry at a research organization uh, just south of London called the Brewing Research Foundation, and um, the, the brief was to do fundamental research on, uh, on brewing for, um, for companies, uh, mostly in the UK, but also some in Australia, one or two other places as well. So, uh, so I, I, I actually joined in the, the, the overt science uh, side of things. So uh, as my wife will tell you, I, you know, I'm, I'm not the most practical guy in the world. So welding, uh, no, I have never done that. Um, but but I, want, I want Charlie to tell, though, what his other passion was back then, which was football. Very good. Football. Uh, and um, he and I have a connection going back to the late 70s with um, football and music. Yep. Well, what he's alluding to is uh, my dream. I, I, I never wanted to join the brewing industry. I wanted to be a, a goalkeeper for, okay. uh, for Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club. And um, there were three problems. One is my eyesight isn't very good. The second is I'm not tall enough. And the third is I was shit. But uh, <laughs> well, actually, no, the, the third of those is not true. Um, but uh, I used to write in the, the match day program of, of Wolverhampton Wanderers. And you may or may not know that the most famous supporter of Wolverhampton Wanderers, present company accepted, is Robert Plant um, oh, yeah. of uh, Led Zeppelin. And so I interviewed him. Uh, I'll never get him. I interviewed him at the grounds, and we were walking in, and the, the woman said, hello, Charlie, how are you? And she looked at Robert Plant and said, you need a haircut. Um, <laughs> but Robert's son was with him when I interviewed him, and uh, Logan was about yay high, but these days he uh, owns the Beavertown Brewery in London right. and brews some great hoppy beers. But uh, I was mentioning this to Ken some while ago, and he said, well, you were in the studio. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I was with Robert Plant when we recorded A Whole Lot of Love. Were you really? Back in 1968 or 9, whenever that record was recorded. Okay. Uh, one of my um, elementary school buddies' mom's uh, boyfriend owned the recording studio. So every afternoon in high school, we would go to the recording studio and Robert Plant happened to be there recording uh, that with just the two of us and the band. Wow. And I got pictures of us sitting around this. I'm, I'm 16, 15, 16 years old. Yeah. With Robert Plant doing a whole lot of love. So that's our connection. So Charlie I and I go. I have this whole go, list go, go, about go innovation. Yeah. And I just found out that you know Robert Plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so, so we, ha- we have a connection that goes back uh, in different ways other than the brewing industry. That's and I know cool. Logan as well. So Yeah. 
good guy as well. It makes makes great um, hoppy beers. He does. Uh, when I, uh, the very first time I was saying to somebody earlier on today, the very first time I met Ken when I first came to uh, UC Davis in 1999, I went up to uh, to see Ken, and it's in his book, so it, it must be right. Um, um, the, the very first thing Ken said to me, Charlie, what do you think of electron spin resonance spectroscopy? I said, Ken, I can't even spell that. I, I certainly wouldn't buy it, but he, he, he did do. And then we went to the bar, and he presented me um, uh, uh, all, the, all the beers that he was brewing. And I said, Ken, you know, your beers are about as hoppy as I can take them. And he said, 25 years ago, I was brewing in a bucket, and now I'm brewing hundreds of thousands of barrels every year. Can I leave it alone? I said, go for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's and work. Yeah, it's, it's going to work. And uh, I'm not sure how I was going with that. But, can you uh, tell me what this device is in layman's terms that I can understand? What device is that? <laughs> you don't know either, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I can't say it again, or I would. Electron spin resonance spectroscopy. What does it measure? It measures free radicals. Yeah, you got to remember that, uh, and, and this is this this is one. Of, these are the things that really promote uh, staling of beer. They ultimately promote staling of beer. And in fact, the first people to show that, and this comes back to your theme of innovation, <laughs> Thank um, you. was a guy called Roy Parsons and I um, at uh, working for Bass in the mid '80s. Now, Roy had two lives. One is he was a scientist working for me, and the other one he was a sex therapist. Um, so he, those are you know, two lives. Yeah, and and he had them side by side and on the same telephone. But anyway, um, and we worked together on this, and we we were the first people really to point out that these radical forms of oxygen are responsible for staling. And in fact, we reported it at the Brewing Congress of the Americas in St. Louis in 1984. Okay. And, f- and we used very simple test tube chemistry, but out of that came electron spin resonance, which measures these things that we were talking about. So, I see. Um, so it's a, it's a very, uh, it's, it's one tool. It's very useful for measuring these radicals, but it's, it's not the only tool. Well, and this is some real innovation that I have come to learn about Sierra Nevada. I always knew that I liked Sierra beer. It was my first craft beer. I've told Ken that before. In fact, I just took like a month off of drinking, and guess what my first beer back was? Just like the old days, it was a Sierra Pale Ale. Um, but... I know that uh, I've learned more about you that, that quality uh, is something that you've cared about from the very, very beginning, even though you, you had to piece together your first brew house and figure that out. And I, sometimes when I talk to brewers about you, I was speaking to somebody recently who was talking about you young brewers out there who don't uh, you know, have a lab or spend money, and, or worse, when you make comments like, well, I don't have to have that device or that lab because I sell every drop of beer that I make. And this particular brewer, was, his answer to that was, so does Ken Grossman. And he spends a lot on, on R&D and trying to make sure that we get the very best beer. And some of it were these staling agents. And you still, to this day, I, I think, probably lose sleep over packaging uh, your beer. Uh, this is always something that's been important to you. Yeah, I, I think, and, and if you're a brewer in this industry today and you don't focus on how to make great beer, consistent beer, beer that holds up in the marketplace, you're missing the boat, and eventually it'll come back to haunt you. Yeah. Um, but my, my question, though, is to Charlie, how does the ESR and sex, the, the sex therapy uh, connect? That, that was my, <laughs> my thought, and after you said that. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, there's no connection whatsoever. Um, 
But uh, was he good at both jobs? <laughs> he was a fairly dodgy guy, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but, but uh, he did have qualifications. Which I've seen the certificates. But but anyway, to to, to be you know um, serious, uh, I think as a brewer in this era, I mean, there's eight thousand brewers in this country. Yeah, there's a lot of great beer being brewed today, um, and I, and I'm not don't want to detract from anybody, but sure, there's a lot of knowledge and science and little details that all of us should pay attention to in order to make sure that we do deliver that consistent, high-quality, reproducible product to the consumer. Because I think that's, that's where it's at. And, you know, we can do damage to our uh, consumers as, a, as an aggregate of, you know, what beer is and what beer should be if you have really bad experiences. And there's plenty of bad beer out there, too. So... Yeah, when I, I mentioned earlier on that I joined the Brewing Research Foundation, and the, the remit there was to do research for everybody um, who were member companies, but really it was doing research for everybody. And a lot of our focus was on things like safety and wholesomeness. Yes. And, and the issue, whether it's, it's a safety issue, a wholesomeness issue, or a quality issue, is everybody's in, in it together, you know? And if somebody falls short... Uh, the the whole beer world gets a bad rap, yeah. and it's it's so important that uh, the the world of brewing is populated by conscientious people mm-hmm. and people who really want to do it right, um, and who have got a t- attention to detail, and, and you know nobody has more attention to detail than these guys. I can tell you sure. because you know you just got to go to Chico or go to Mills River and look at the uh, investment that's gone in there. Not in everything, in everything, but including in, in research and quality systems and so on. Um, and everybody should have that mindset. Yeah. Because if, 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 if somebody falls short and lets the side down, then it'd be very easy for the whole thing to unravel. And, and just to maybe put a, a, a finer point or a, a different point on that, too, I, and I didn't mean to say that the, these brewers aren't even making good beer. I think I also I think it's also important that you just don't rest on on your laurels. In other words, I think that Ken was making beer correctly 20 years ago also, but correctly keeps moving. That's a moving target. It's a changing uh, as as we innovate, as equipment becomes different. And so I also think that it's important if, if you're brewing good beer now, you don't just stop. You don't just stop learning and then that's something I think you've never done. Yeah, I, and I think that's a, uh, a sentiment I try to infuse into all the people who work for me is that um, there's always room for improvement. And, yeah. and you know, technology's improved dramatically. When I first started bottling beer um, 40 years ago, the standard for the industry was if you get under one milliliter of air in a bottle, you're doing pretty good at packaging. I mean, today that would be horrible. Really? Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I haven't. I've done the math, but it's been a long time ago. But one milliliter today is is hundreds of parts per billion of O2, and we try to get down into the 20, 30, 40 parts per billion of O2. Wow. So I mean, it's a, a factor of 10 or 20 or, or or more that used to be the acceptable standard, but things like that do matter. So beer, beer stability. Uh, is highly impacted by oxygen in, in packaging. And today we have the means to measure that. We have very sophisticated instrumentation that's readily available at reasonable cost. So if you're a brewer and you're not measuring your package oxygen, you're doing a big disservice to your consumers. Sure. 
Now, the other thing to say about that is, as well is I mean, oxygen is, a, is a, a key enemy, but so too is, is heat. So if beer is, is too warm, it is going to go stale uh, much more rapidly. Um, and so a lot of the beer that is imported into the United States, and a lot of people say, oh, that's sexy, that's come from wherever it's come from. <laughs> the, the chances are it's going to be really stale. Um, and that is why things like refrigerated distribution are so critical. So Sierra Nevada ship their beer cold. Yeah. They ship every drop of beer cold. And if people believe in things like um, freshness and flavor stability, if they think it's important, they've got to invest in it. They've got to stand up and be counted. Uh, and too many people in the world do not stand up and be counted. And I think it's shortchanging the customer. Um, a lot of people in this country, they'll taste certain brands of beer. And then they'll go and taste that beer wherever it was brewed. And it just doesn't taste the same. Yeah. And that is, to me, that is failing the customer. You should run for something, Charlie. When you say it like I, that, I get all hyped up. Yeah, yeah, but I'm English. I'm not allowed. That's true. <laughs> uh, We've we have, done worse. We have a, a hand up here in the audience. Uh, come on up to the microphone here so that we can get it on the recording, too. Oh, recording. Yeah. If you don't mind, that way we can hear you, too. Okay. You, come on right up just to that one right there. Got one just for you. You're, you're well, going to be World, World Wide Web right now. So. Could you right. sing I Left My Heart in San Francisco, please? Uh, no, I would rather sit on the dock of the bay. But you know, uh, So, well, my question, you know, you guys are talking about quality. And you and, I, and every time you say the word quality, I think in ter- I can't help but tra- take that word and, and translate it into it's healthier for my body or healthier. Uh, now, I don't know if that's exactly what you mean, but it sure seems like. Yeah. I don't drink cheap beer for a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. You know? so, so, so I will say not necessarily. Um, so uh, you can have really great raw materials turned into really great beer, and it can taste like crap if it's not treated properly. So just because it, it, the ingredients were good and the brewer was great, means you have a great brewing experience or, or beer drinking experience. So a lot of it does have to do with storage conditions, with things like the oxygen ingress at packaging. Uh, so you can destroy great beer uh, um, many ways. Um, e- easiest is at packaging doing a bad job, but also how it's stored and handled. I, I still would assume, sorry, that it would just be better. F- well, there, there are two, two, two things to answer to that question. The first is what is quality? And and my simple definition of quality is the product that you expect. So whatever you think a beer should taste like, if it meets that expectation, it's quality. In terms of your specific question about your body, thank you for asking the question because my next book... um, There we go. (laughs) ...is about safety and wholesomeness. Um, In terms of... It's very difficult... It's very difficult for people in the brewing industry to talk about beer and health. If I say, having been in the industry for 41 years, 42 years, if I say beer's good for you, people say, hell yeah, Charlie, what are you going to say? Of course you're going to say that. But there's a lot of evidence that in moderation, in moderation, uh, beer is good for you. I mean, there's a lot of nutritive value in beer. Um, And the alcohol itself cuts down the risk of your arteries clogging. However, uh, brewers can't promote beer 
on a health kick, unfortunately. <laughs> and in fact, I was ju- I've just received some, some old I- images from uh, England uh, for this book, and these from the, the old uh, Brewer Society in England, which is the equivalent of the Brewers Association in, in the States, which actually markets beer on a health kick. Mm. Uh, yeah, all those good things, you know, and, and you know, you, you can actually row for Great Britain if you drink beer well, and, and, and tug, tugs of war and all that good well, stuff. I was hoping so. But you can, yeah. so, beer, so beer in moderation, sir, is good for you. But, well, and I don't mean to challenge what you said, Charlie, but if you, you say we can't market beer as a health product, but since this is about innovation, isn't there something to be said about things like kombucha and and lower alcohol seltzers that in a way we're offering a potentially healthier, healthier well, product? Well, let me just take issue with the word seltzer Thank right Thank you. There. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever challenge Charlie. Go ahead. We're talking about beer here. I don't think, I don't think brewers have got any business uh, doing seltzers. Um, so, yeah, low alcohol. Um, yeah, because a, in alcohol calories, it's in proportion. So a lower alcohol beer. And, and so that's, you know, if you think of the beers that I grew up on in the UK, you know, three and a half, four percent alcohol by volume. Um, not only very drinkable, but lowering calories. Um, but a lot of nutrition, a lot of nutritional value, fiber, antioxidants, B, B vitamins and so on in beer. Um, Kombucha, yeah. Um, uh, Again, um, these are wholesome products that I personally believe are adult products. And the the thing that concerns me about, and and remember, when I was with Bass, we, back in the mid-80s, were making flavored alcoholic drinks, which did not sit comfortably with a lot of people um, because they're not really focused on being adult, mature, good quality beverages. Okay, that's fair. And so, uh, so yeah, you, you, uh, I, I, well, I think there's a lot to be said for the lower alcohol end of things, as well as the higher alcohol as well. So do I love Bigfoot? You sure as hell, I love Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm delighting in a narwhal right now, you know? Um, and this is one of my favorite, uh, this barrel-aged narwhal is perhaps my favorite uh, Sierra Nevada product. Having said that, there's a lot of opportunity for the lower alcohol range. But for goodness sake, let's be doing proper fermented beverages and that is beer and uh, and, and kombucha. No, no I, I, I echo Charlie. I, I will say that um, you know there is a um, a legal line that is easy to cross in the United States about touting any benefit from any beverage that contains alcohol. So that is something as a producer. We need to be very cognizant of because there are detriments for some people for drinking alcohol. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, getting that on the table, that is something we are very concerned about promoting um, that alcoholic beverages are helpful. On the other hand, there are aspects of alcoholic beverages that do have some benefits from both nutrition and from potentially uh, with kombucha maybe some bacteria or cultures that may have benefits. But we, uh, as responsible alcohol producers, do not discuss that. We, we do not promote that. Fair. Um, 
but um, you know there are some beverages that are lower carb, lower calorie, um, non-gluten containing. You know, there there are a, a lot of things that we can do as beverage producers that may work with people's lifestyles better. Um, so we're cognizant of that, and we we we're trying to provide an array of those beverages that uh, can work with people's lifestyles. But uh, I will not be one publicly stating that. Tomorrow morning, you'll wake up feeling way better after you drink three of our kombuchas. Right. Other people, other people do that, but um, you know, I, I would be, uh, I would caution that as an incentive for people to drink. Sure. A number of years ago, I was interviewed in that August journal, the News and Review in Sacramento, and they they lost ch track of the number of times I used the word moderation in in the actual interview. So I'm, I'm always very careful about using the term moderation, but but you know. There's one specific example, uh, and, and Ken just mentioned it, I'd like to draw attention to. And this is it's kind of interesting. So when I retired from uh, UC Davis, Ken said, come and spend some time with us at Sierra Nevada. And uh, he's sitting next to me, but I've said this to everybody else every time. I wouldn't have said yes to anybody else, so I said yes. This is just a couple years ago, right? Uh, uh, a year ago, yeah. So I was delighted to... And when I arrived on my very first day, he said, I've just bought Sufferfest. Um, and so which is Sufferfest is the... Which is the gluten-free thing. And I was the guy who came up with the first brew for Sufferfest really? at UC Davis. Um, so so that, that there's a beautiful symmetry there. And um, so we, we helped Caitlin uh, Landsberg Rooney come up with uh, her first recipes for Sufferfest. So, so there's some wonderful beers out there. Brewers can't, they can't promote overtly, and you can't call a beer gluten-free if it's made out of malted barley. You just can't do it. But brewers put a lot of effort into making sure that it, it is drastically reduced in gluten so people can these days enjoy a product which tastes like a beer that they want to taste um, sure. even if they are trying to avoid uh, gluten. So that's a great example of innovation, uh, that, that br the brewers um, really look at a problem and, you know, they won't be deflected from solving that problem. Uh, and, and that's a great example of one way of doing it. After all this time, and not just all this time, the two of you, all this time beer has been around, are, do, are these types of innovations playing with different types of fermentation, kombucha, uh, gluten-reduced beer, is it exciting to you? It, does it, you know what I mean? Is it, it's kind of like back to the day, you're challenged again with, to, to get something to market that, that's not, you know, great yet? Uh, for me, very much so. Okay. so. So as a uh, person who's, and we spoke, we have some uh, people from the, from the Saki uh, plant right across the road over nice. here. Um, so, so as a person interested in fermenting almost everything, I made Saki back in 1970, I don't remember what year, but in the early 70s. Okay. Um, my mentor made Saki back in the late 60s. Um, I like fermenting things. I like the whole process, the understanding of the biology, the chemistry. And so for me, uh, our, our kombucha project was very exciting cool. and very challenging and, and something that our team did an amazing job of 
uh, of approaching, attacking, solving, and coming up with a product that I think is amazing and really quite drinkable. Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah, it, it still keeps the uh, enthusiasm towards, you know, I'm, I'm a brewer. Yeah. And brewing kombucha is still brewing, and, and it's a, uh, a variant of that that's got a lot of technical challenges and and process challenges and all the other challenges I tackled as a brewer. So I think it's great. Sure. Um, and I, I'm with Charlie, you know, just making an alcoholic beverage that has flavoring and, and selling as an alternative. It doesn't really solve all those kinds of, of challenges that I, I have loved to face as a brewer, where you're looking at biology and chemistry and flavor and and process and and uh, you know th there's uh, a, a lot of things as a brewer if you're if you master your art it's rewarding but really hard mm -hmm. uh, I think some of the other approaches people are taking are simple and not not nearly as as taxing as as uh, 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 as a brewer who sort of masters their art yeah so to me I think it's great and I'm I'm open-minded at this point I didn't maybe 20 years ago you asked me that same question I would say <laughs> no I'm just making beer yeah but today it's like yeah no I think I'm gonna push the boundaries and make interesting things it's very interesting that, that I was with with bass in the, uh, the mid 80s so I was a research manager and I was responsible for um, new product development, and you are responsible for you know, troubleshooting issues and so on. And the golden edict in, in Bass at the time was uh, make it bright. You know, everything had to be brilliantly bright. Uh, we spent a lot of time on how to clarify cast condition ales, how to make sure the fining materials were working, and uh, how to make sure our bottle conditioned beers, when you poured them out, the yeast stayed in the bottle and so on. I would never have predicted we'd we, we, we come to 2020 and, you know, there's cloudy beers. You, know? you wasted five years of your life, Charlie. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. So I came in here tonight and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the manager of the bar here said to me, what would you like? I said, I'd like a hazy little thing, please. Yeah. You know? <laughs> because what? the flavor, the flavor is fantastic. You know? And, and to, to Charlie's comment, though, it is way harder making clear beer. Oh, it is trust un me. unbelievably difficult to make a really stable, cloudy beer. If you if you if you if you if you take a beer and you you filter it, it's quite straightforward. The, the, the trick then is to make sure it stays bright and doesn't develop a haze. But to develop a, to have a hazy product and the haze stays in suspension. That is a challenge. Let me tell you, that is a challenge. Not a yeah. um, but, but, you know, and the answer is not sort of, you know, by putting in bucket loads of starch or anything like that. So, <laughs> so it, it, I, never, I never would have predicted it. And, and I, you know, Ken sitting next to me, so I will say it, my personal, personal preference, and beer drinking is a personal preference, I like my beers bright. But, you know, I did ask for a hazy little thing because the flavor is Every fantastic, you know? It's, it's the, just fantastic. There's a question, there's a hand up here. While you come up, let me, I just want to ask Ken real quick because I think it could be a quick uh, answer. Was the first pale ale, were they brilliantly clear? Was your Sierra pale ale brilliantly clear in the Absolutely beginning? Absolutely not. It wasn't, right? <laughs> I mean, certainly I when I started, uh, you know, at the Brewing Network, I 
I could always, you could tell a homebrew from a pro brew back then because almost all homebrew was kind of hazy. Not like it is now. It's a different kind of haze, right? But I also a lot of craft beer even 15 years ago. So I was curious about yours. Yeah. Yeah. So 1981, I was buying malt from Bauer Schweitzer Malting in San Francisco. And they had a fully modified pale malt that was going to anchor New Alban, and I have no idea where else. But it, I'm sure they were selling in other places. But it made pretty clear beer without anything. We weren't doing filtering. We weren't doing anything. Got it. And then they went out of business, I think, in 82. And I started buying malt from Great Western Malting in uh, Los Angeles. And good malters. I'm not complaining. But as soon as we switched, our beers were really hazy. I see. And we had no control. I mean, we were like, you know, one-tenth of one-hundredth of one percent of their volume. And so we were just buying malt made for Budweiser or whatever at the time. And we had to put a filter in because we got consumer complaints. Our beers were too hazy. And I bought Fritz Maytag's old filter in 1982. And uh, we started filtering our beer. But before that, we never filtered it because it was clear enough. Interesting. Okay. I was just curious. Uh, go Wolves. Go Wolves. Yeah. Nuno Esperanto. Hopefully they can keep him as the manager. Well, so do I. <laughs> uh, Nuno, yes. What, what a great name. Espiritu yes. Santo. What a great yes. name. Uh, so I, one I've of the, that island, actually. It's an island off of the Sierra Cortez. Yes, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> one of the interesting things, when I started drinking Sierra products in the early 80s, uh, you were one of the few craft brewers that had the twist, twist-offs as opposed to the crown cap. cap. So can you explain that? Uh, sure. We actually, you, you served me one tonight. Yes, I did. Um, so we started out with not twist-off caps back in 1980. Uh, 80, 81, 82, we had a bar bottle, a returnable bar bottle. And then we were buying those from beer distributors and other uh, places where we could buy used bar bottles. All of a sudden, one summer, that market dried up and there were no bar bottles we could buy. And we weren't big enough to buy from the glass manufacturers. So we bought the only bottle we could buy, which was a... Uh, called a heritage bottle out of uh, the Northwest, the twist-off. And we were forced into that decision. So we, we went from a long neck bar bottle, and we, they're, they're, we have them in our collection, but there are some bottles with the long, tall label stuck on a small bottle, so the label sticks above the shoulder because we had a switch like one week uh, when we couldn't find glass anymore. Um, <laughs> So we switched to a, a widely available bottle back in the early 80s, and we stuck with that. We shortened the label and did all that. But we realized that a pry-off bottle cap, actually you could get different um, polymers, different plastic liner materials with a pry-off finish than you could with a twist-off. And the pry-off bottles had better oxygen barrier properties. So the beer would age better with a pry-off bottle cap versus one that was a puffed polyvinyl chloride lubricated twist-off finish. So we switched many, many years ago to a uh, liner material that uh, would not work on a twist-off bottle. And cans are even better than bottles because no oxygen gets into a can at all. Or, or light. light. Or light. Yeah. Or light. 
What about during the packaging process? Are cans better than bottles during that process, too? Uh, um, or is that no, one a little not, tricky? Not necessarily. So if you have a really good bottle line and a really good can line, you can get down in the 20 to 50 ppb range. Okay. And both both uh, technologies. So if you manage it right, you can get the same initial oxygen pick up into the package. And then, as Charlie pointed out, um, the, the way you seal a can with a sort of a double lip seal I does see. preclude oxygen from migrating into the bottle. And it's, it's, uh, it's a sort of high technology, but if, if, you, um, uh, if you studied chemistry at some point, uh, Dalton's law of partial pressures, so if you've got oxygen outside and no oxygen inside, Charlie's going to probably correct me, mm. uh, <laughs> oxy- oxygen will want to go into the package with no oxygen in it, Okay, and so you'll actually get oxygen creep going into the bottle. Uh, as the beer sits on the shelf. I see. And the barrier, the ceiling properties of a can are better, so you'll get less oxygen actually trying to migrate its way through the plastic liner of a bottle cap. Okay. So a can will resist that oxygen ingress better better than a bottle. And I noticed that you... Like you still like to do a mix of, of cans and, and bottles, and does Mills River has have anything to do with that too? You can now just get beer quickly to people just absolutely everywhere, or you just still like both as a format? No, it, it's it comes down to people like you. So if you would drink everything in cans, yeah, we would supply you with everything in cans. Okay, <laughs> because it is a a better package in many ways than bottles. Um, but the consumers are fickle, and some consumers won't drink cans. Some don't care about cans, um, but there are some that only want to drink bottles. So. Sure. It, it really is, uh, and I'll tell, I often tell this story to this. I was in Oklahoma with my wife, and, um, and uh, this woman in the restaurant said, what do you want to drink? I said, well, what craft brews do you have? She's got, she said, I got Bud, Miller, and Coors. I said, uh, anything else? She said, yeah, I got Pabst Blue Ribbon. I said, I love one of them. And it, and, it, and it came in a can. And I momentarily went, ugh. And my wife said, what is it with you? What just happened? Yeah, they brought you a beer in a can, and you've moaned about it, and you tell everybody beer's better in a can. And I said, you know, I, I don't think a can looks is the best choice in a restaurant, you know, right. with a white tablecloth and so on. And... Um, yeah. And, and, and go figure, you know, uh, and that's, that, that is a personal, personal uh, opinion. And lots of people have got lots, lots of opinions about what's right and what is wrong. Yeah, we All do. I do know is that in, in terms of shelf life, there's a ch- the chances are the beer in the can is going to be the better choice. And of course, it's a much lighter weight container uh, than shipping bottles around. I just realized as both of you were talking about it that I'm, I'm not a fickle consumer, but I am just a creature of habit. I always grab the bottles, but without even thinking. I, I don't have some process about it. I'm looking at it right now, and I know exactly that I would grab the bottle on the left just out of habit. Well, people have said to me over the years, they said, well, beer out of a can is metallic. No, it isn't. It's not. It's yeah. not metallic, metallic at all. It's yeah, a, it's a long a, time ago. It is, well, even, even then, they still say it these days. Metallic. No, it's not. I mean, the, the cans are properly lacquered and protected. It's not. <laughs> so, so, so I have shifted. So I was the same as you. Okay. But now, I actually, I drink the same beer, bottle, and can. I tend to prefer the can. You do? Yeah. So I'm, I'm starting to shift my... 
You know, if I have the option, I might grab the can over the bottle. And I think I could easily see that happening, but I would have to make a concerted effort at first just to change a habit is, is all. Well, what, what might be next? Uh, you know, what's the next innovation? Uh, and, and I don't know if that's a style of beer that we want to talk about or the next technology that you're, you're already looking at to, to keep beer fresher and better. Is there something that has you kind of fired up now? Well, um, uh, hopefully tonight you'll get to drink some of our kombucha. Oh, yeah, we have that. Yeah. I did have a sip earlier, and it really is very good. Yeah, so, so that, that, that's a, a innovation, I would say, you know, as a person who loves fermenting things, um, it was one that gave me a lot of, uh, uh, gave our whole team a lot of challenges. But, but I think we ended up with a mix of yeast and bacteria that really gave a fantastic tasting product. So I'm pretty excited about that. Okay. And you've got more than one coming out, like different flavors we of have, it. We have many, many yep. of them coming out and, and more down the road. So I think it, it uh, challenges somebody who's into fermentation mm-hmm. to understand, you know, that balance of yeast and bacteria. We've been making... Um, Beers ultra base, where you know lactic fermentation and and uh, kettle sours and yeast fermentations, and so we've been sort of blending those those two styles of making um, beverages. But this is one where it's almost symbiotic. It is symbiotic, so sure. you're you're fermenting with yeast and bacteria at the same time to try to get the balance right. So I think it, it's a great challenge to make an outstanding one, and I think we've done it, and, and I think that'll be where we focus for the, at least the short term here. If I, um, back in the day when I was with, with Bass, we were, we were adventurous, I think. Uh, we, would, we would try a lot of things. The only golden rule was never screw with the Carling Black Label because that's what pays the bill. Okay. Um, but we would we would do a lot of innovative stuff and um, some wacky ideas. Um, I have a patent from 1987, I think it was 86, on putting egg white into beer to put bubbles on it. Um, okay. Yeah, quite. So you know, I, I I'd never heard of I'd never heard of pisco sour. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the, the problem is when you put egg white into beer um, and you pasteurize the beer, you get poached eggs. So I, 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 I was known as poached eggs for long enough, but we overcame that. But the point I'm making is this, that the, there's all sorts of, um, not exactly wacky, but there's all sorts of research that people do. Um, and, and am I going to say this? Yes, I'll say this, um, because I'm not sure they're in the audience tonight. But we, we, we published a, a paper in Nature Biotechnology, uh, you can't do better than that, on a genetically modified yeast producing hop aroma with people from, from UC Berkeley. Wow. Um, so there is a lot of innovation potentially there. The question is, um, do you use it or not? And I think brewers, the, the best brewers are the ones who are wise in choosing what is and what is not something that they are prepared to do. And mm-hmm. uh, what I have learned from my uh, time uh, as senior quality advisor to Sierra Nevada is, is Ken and the team, they want to do things right. And if there's a, a traditional way of doing things, that is the way to go. And I think they're well advised in that that respect. So I think I think something like kombucha is is uh, innovative, but it is 
historic. I mean, I don't know how long it's been around, but it's been around for thousands of years. So what they've done there is perfect the production of a consistent product, an alcoholic kombucha, um, by applying tradition and doing it well. And I think that is the message that I would give to all brewing companies to, to, to not go for wacky solutions, but to uh, tread carefully and uh, uh, advance and apply technology with an eye to doing it right. In this sense, you're still fermenting. You're not reinventing the wheel here. You're you're using the same principles of fermentation. I, I think so. To, to try on something else. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think yeah. that is the the approach that the brewers should use. Uh, and uh, the bottom line every time is: is this responsible? And is this a quality proposition? That that is that is what it's all about. Sure. Uh, have you had to put in new facilities to do this, or is it using the same? You, so new. I was just wondering about that. So is it the same brew house, the same tanks, the same? You know, uh, we can share the things that are not uh, concerning about contaminating, but all new bright beer tanks, new centrifuge, new packaging lines, wow. all that dedicated because we do not want to have all the cultures we're using kombucha get into the brewery. Yeah. I don't think they only want to produce kombucha. <laughs> yeah. And there are, some brewer, there are some brewers who have tried it, and that's all they can produce anymore. So, If we have questions, come on well, up. Yeah. Every time Charlie says something, I have a question. So just yeah. now, are you trying to say that the, the brewing industry or the, the food industry has an ethical standard or, or ethical uh, position to uh, be careful about genetic engineering for products? No, no, I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that people have to enter into things... With w- wisely, yeah. I mean, uh, we had uh, when I was research manager for Bass in the mid '80s, I had two genetic, uh, two molecular biologists working on gene technology. Bass actually started an entire subsidiary company on making blood serum albumin out of surplus brewing yeast. Um. And that company still exists. Somebody else owns it. And to the best of my knowledge, in 40 years, they've not actually sold any product. But there, uh, there are some yeast, genetic yeast going on. We've got, there's a lot of, there's, yeah, there's, there, and, there are. this might explode in the next 10 years. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think, I mean, um, the very first guy, uh, when I was director of research at the BRF International, we had a guy called John Hammond, who was not, not the same one that actually was in Jurassic Park, but another one. Um, but uh, he actually genetically modified a yeast, and it was approved for use in the UK. And it was a yeast, that, clap. It was a yeast that actually produced an enzyme to break down the, the dextrins in the beer, so you can make a low-carb beer using it. But you can do a low-carb beer in other ways. You don't need to use a genetically modified yeast. So my point is this. Personally, me, Charlie Bamford, I, 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 I'm not scared of genetically modified organisms. And, and, you know, I think insulin produced by genetically modified organisms is a damn good thing. Mm-hmm. But do you need GMOs to actually make beer? And the answer is no. No, no. We don't need the perfect tomato in the world. Unless there is some unique advantage to doing it, I think brewers should tread carefully. All right. Sorry to get philosophical. Let me ask you a silly question. When you're drinking the hazy out of a can, do you still need to pour with vigor? (laughs) 
you, even more so do okay. you need to pull it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, I, okay, I'm sorry. Now, I, really, I have a real technical question. Let, can I ask about stratification? So in the, in the fermentation and blending process, uh, is is strat- not thermal stratification, but yeast or other cultures? It how how do you improve quality and consistency, uh, and and make sure that you don't have layers in in tanks and 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 during during the fermentation and during the pre packaging process? Uh, I, I will speak that after we're done. Okay, sorry. I'll come talk to you. That may be a, more, a longer longer talk, and I need to go to the restroom. Right, so sorry. fair enough. <laughs> Does anybody else have any questions for these two gentlemen? Yeah, come on up. So this is for all three of you, but so when you're at the end of the day, maybe a hard day, a good day, what is the beer that you choose to drink at the end of the day? Okay. <laughs> I'm just, so I am a creature of habit, but okay. I do shift from time to time. So I stick with that one for a while, and then I move to another okay. one. Uh, it had been for the longest time uh, Drake's fifteen hundred. I, I, it's almost always a pale ale. Yeah. I know it sounds ridiculous because I'm sitting up here. It has now shifted back to Sierra Pale Ale. Nice. Uh, okay. And in fact, we, even when I took my my month off, I had a six pack of the Sierra Pale Ale in my fridge yeah. the whole time, and I just said hi to it every day. And then uh, <laughs> when I was ready to go back, I didn't go buy the craziest beer. I didn't go buy you know. I didn't wait for something that Find I had younger. <laughs> I really, I, it, I just wanted a, a nice Sierra Pale Ale. I like it. That's, Very nice. So now I'm back on that kick. Yeah. That's after a month of free uh, no beer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. I do most of my shopping um, at Safeway, close to where I live. And my wife actually does. Yeah, yeah, yeah my wife does real. it. But um, no, no. If I want beer, I got to go and buy it. Um, so what's on the list? And uh, so the, the the selection there is is relatively limited. Okay. So the chances are, if you look in my refrigerator, you're going to find torpedo. Okay. Oh yeah, and um, uh, but if I uh, if I'm lucky there, uh, or do I want to go a little bit further, um, as I, as Ken knows, uh, it will be Sierra Nevada Optimum. Okay. So then, what wow. you said at the beginning of this talk, when yeah. he was he he was at your hop threshold, you're yep. you you've shifted. I'm afraid, and um, Ken might not like to hear this, but Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is not hoppy enough. For oh right no. <laughs> Finish it. Considering Charlie and I are both drinking a, a barrel aged Norwell right now. That's Here we go. Right now. Let me t- let me tell you a story about this. I I, I was doing a beer dinner. A, a Charlie, little... I have to go to the bathroom. All right, <laughs> you go to the bathroom. I'll talk. I'll wait. I'll wait for you. I was doing a beer dinner, and um, uh, actually, if you go onto YouTube, you can find me doing exactly the same thing. I was in London, and I said, "Can we have a, a break?" And they said, "No, go away." Uh, it's a, <laughs> I was doing a beer dinner, and it was uh, in, in Davis, and, um, and the, there were four courses. The fourth course was a chocolate dessert with a barrel-aged narwhal. And I started talking about it, and somebody in the audience said, Charlie, shut up, <laughs> and let us just enjoy this. Very nice. Um, done. So barrel-aged narwhal is, is a di- but they don't sell it in Safeway in Davis. Right. Very nice. <laughs> Well, Justin, I thank you very much for putting this on or 
however this worked out. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, thanks for thanks great. for being here. I, I got to at least great talk. Evening. I can't say goodbye without Ken. It doesn't feel right. No, but, great. but I appreciate you say that. Thank you for all your questions also. Um, Charlie, is quality control, is tasting at Sierra part of your uh, job well, now? Well, or? It's not officially part of my job, but I do okay. a lot of it when yeah. I'm back. Um, What's your job? No. Yeah, what is my job? Good uh, question. What do you do for Sierra? So my, my, my title is uh, Senior Quality Advisor. So um, That's title. That is the title, Senior Quality Advisor. So, um, so I, I'll never forget when, and uh, I, I hope he's going to come back in a minute so I can, he can hear me say it. Yeah. So when, when, he first, when Ken first said to me, come and spend time, come and do some work with us, I said, Ken, what can I tell you guys about quality? You know, what, yeah. what, what is there that I can tell you? And um, but he, he's, nonetheless, he still wanted me to join, and so um, my so my role is is um, to observe and um, and perhaps a little bit of training and to get involved in some of the issues that uh, exist in any brewing company about uh, about quality. Um, you know, I, I I I've been in the industry forty one years. And I've said this so many times, and I've, I've said it in your studio. Let, let me tell you, the very first time I ever went on his, no. his radio show, it was in his house. It was in my house. It was in his home. And there was a motorbike And he thought inside. I was the biggest white trash he'd ever met in his there life. There was a motorbike. It in, wasn't inside. It was inside the front door. And I looked at him and I said, you're not married then. And he said, brilliant, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I've been... I now live in a motorhome. I've been on his... <laughs> I've been on his, on his show and I've been all over the world. And I've been in the brewing industry. It'll be 42 years this year. And I'm going to say it now in front of him because I said it behind his back countless times. But this is the most impressive guy that I've ever met in the brewing industry. And that's why I work with Sierra Nevada. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. Now that I've had a chance to refresh, so, uh, so I'm good. So anyway, I've known Charlie now since I think the first week or month that he started at UC Davis, and I knew his predecessor, Michael Lewis, for 25 years. I don't know. I, I met him back in the mid 70s when I was a home brewer. Um, UC Davis has has been a resource for us all these years. Having a brewing program in Northern California has been an amazing thing for the American brewing scene. Um, they have really set the standard and have offered so much education for brewers in America. Uh, there's dozens and dozens of, of uh, schools now that claim to produce brewers or have brewing certificates, but uh, having people like Charlie Bamforth um, able to be supporting the brewing industry in America has done so much to raise the bar and to allow the U.S. to be now the brewing mecca of the world. Um, that I have, I have nothing but fantastic things to say about Charlie. He's been a super resource for us. I, I, we challenge him now. His challenge is how to make easy beer. And not that many years ago, it was how to not make easy beer. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the level of 
science that uh, having a brewing university in America and in California brings to raising the bar for the brewing industry is, is something we can't uh, overlook. And I think that now America is the brewing capital of the world. I mean, we really set the standard for how to make great beer, how to make innovative beer, how to sort of push that boundary. And Charlie's been a big part of that over the years. So um, I'm, I'm privileged and honored to be able to have Charlie as a as a uh, resource uh, to help us. So anyway, thanks, Charlie. And yes, thank you, Charlie. And I hope the Brits give you hell for leaving and bringing it all to here when you when you go back there. You know. Another question here. <laughs> Hello, I have a quick question about cans. Um, I love cans; they're great. You can take them to the beach and all. Yep. Uh, is is the uh, rise of cans more of a, a change in perception, or is it a change in uh, the actual physical lining of the can that preserves the beer, or is it just a market perception that canned beer is okay now? That's a good question, and it's multifaceted. So. Uh, sort of the the bad part of cans, probably at least for the, the the astute consumer, was that cans used to be lined with uh, bisphenol A epoxy liner, and there was a lot in the news about BPA being a, a bad thing, and that cans were containing uh, potential carcinogenic compounds. So uh, beer cans no longer have BPA, uh, and we were one of the early adopters of non-BPA blind cans. Um, Not that any liner is perfect, and even bottle cap liners are not perfect. So if you were to buy a modern bottle cap liner, even the best of the class, it would have some plastic in it, which has plasticizers and, and other things that may be permeable to oxygen. So there's no perfect solution to a bottle closure. Um, the new liners, again, are, are, are free of some of the concerns of, of bisphenol A. Um, I think overall they're a lightweight, easily recyclable, probably preferable package long term compared to glass. Um, glass bottles have, um, you know, th- they're great until they break or have fractures or have um, you know, finish problems that they leak, and, and there's all sorts of problems with bottles. So, I think cans are a likely future package for craft beer and for beer in general that will probably grow, and there's reasons why. Um, so, for for us as a brewer, we we tend to like cans better because we've had less challenges with them. They're not perfect, um, but I think they're a better alternative. So it is a, a, a chemical, physical difference that makes a difference, do you think? Um, physical, for sure. I mean, uh, aside from uh, light, shipping light weight. Bear, oxygen bear properties are better. They don't uh, – glass does not transmit oxygen, but bottle caps actually leak a fair amount of oxygen through the bottle cap back into the – even though they're carbonated, you'll get oxygen migrating back into the package, and the bottle cap is worse than a, a can. Okay. So but, thank you. You know, perception, too, I think that that's, a, that's the obvious great answer of why it was a smart move to keep pushing that package, keep pushing it as a product. But 
some education had to be done. I mean, I remember when the first couple craft beers came out in cans, and there was a lot of like talking that had to be done to convince co- consumers that that was cool. Now, of course, when you go and see many of the glass doors in a, in a store, there's a ton of craft beer cans, but that has happened rapidly. And by rapidly, I guess I mean 10, 12 years, but that's rapid. Uh, actually, there were craft beers in cans 20 years ago. Portland Brewing Company okay, yeah. um, did some canned beers. They, they had sent them to Canada to be canned. Um, Alan Kornhauser, I don't know if any, anybody in this audience knows Alan Kornhauser, old, old, old friend of mine. Lives in Japan. He does live in Japan. Uh, I went to China with him in 1991 and toured three weeks at breweries in China. Nice. Um, but he was one of the first with Portland Brewing to have canned beer made. Okay. Um, and um, I, I think it took a while for the consumer to accept that canned beer could be at the same quality level as glass. Yeah. When I was with Bass, we, uh, in small pack, uh, we did more canned than, than bottle. And there were some countries, I think Denmark from memory, they, they forbid uh, beer being packaged in cans. So there are... There are political reasons and, and, and all sorts of things. And, of course, bottles are very different in the U.K. and in the U.S. from in Canada, where there's, you know, one-trip glass versus returnable glass. And if you've got returnable glass, you've got all the scuffing marks on the bottle, and it just doesn't look attractive. Um, and it, it looks old uh, from the start. So I mean, there's a lot of emotion goes into packaging. And, yeah. and when you think about it, if you go to a brewery, I mean, that's where most of the pe- people seem to be in the in the packaging halls. You know that that is where that is where there's so much investment in terms of automation, but also in terms of re-gearing when there's a change in bottle sizes and all all these things. So a lot of investment in the packaging. That's where that's where so much of the expense is. So it, it's got to be done right. It's got to be done right. And and a brewer can make great beer, but you know the the packaging guys can screw it up pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, what better place to... Add? Go ahead. Yes, we can... Right there is what better place to... Um, right there. Yes, yes. Um, um, we talked earlier about, uh, um, you know, I'm from sake making, and um, um, 40 years almost, 30 years. When you started at, um, and now, how more the taste-wise... I don't know technical area, that the scientific area, but how ch- different we are. But we still consider to be sake and beer is a similar package. Uh, a new a new perspective or a new memory that how the 30 years ago you taste you were experiencing, and now how does it change and how how typically really describe that the lifestyle everything packaging everything is a, you know in co- it's it's a relevant yeah. area and um, how how does you found that it's a change of a quality of a taste in the past 30 years and from now from now to what do you envision what what flavor what quality what what do you want? <laughs> well, I can go back 40 years. So 40 years ago, our beers were hated by 90% of the people because they were too hoppy. <laughs> and, and, and today, yeah, hoppy today, 90% of people say they're not hoppy enough. So, so 
Um, Poor Ken, really. Like, such success, and what an awful (laughs) stigma, the cross you have to bear. Yeah, well, uh, anyway, our our beers from 40 years ago were a shock to the normal beer consumer who was used to drinking 15 bitterness units or 8 or 10 bitterness units lager beers. So our beers were 36, 38 bitterness units. It was very off-putting to most consumers. Um, today, the the craft consumer, which is maybe only 10, 15% of the beer market, thinks our normal pale ale is not hoppy enough. Uh, but the majority of the consumers still want a mild, non-offensive uh, beverage that's carbonated and has a little bit of alcohol and has a little bit of flavor. So what happens 30 or 40 years from now, I, I don't really know. Um, but I would say that there are a, a percentage of beer drinkers who want flavor, who want interesting beverages, who will always be there. And they may go all sorts of directions, whether it's you know kombucha or hoppy beer or IPA or whatever. Um, so I, I don't have a, an answer. If I knew, I would be uh, already. Yeah, yeah, I'd be much. Uh, I'd be rich. But um, <laughs> if you if you um, if you look at the top ten selling beers in the world, I mean they're 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 much of a muchness. You know, they're they're fairly reasonably gently flavored lager style beers, um, and that's been the case for a long time. If I think back to my first 20 odd years in the brewing industry in the UK, you know, the range of, of beer flavors was, was not huge. You know, you, you had all, on one extreme, you had Guinness, and then you had all the, 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 the pale ales and the draft bitters and so on, the bass and the courage and so on and so forth in the middle. And you had the lagers that were growing, you know, the, the Carling Black Labels and, uh, and so on and so forth. So there wasn't huge diversity. Um, so I think now we have a greater degree of diversity uh, already in, um, in the beer market. So there is a tremendous range. Uh, what I worry about is everything seems to, to err in the direction of higher alcohol. Um, I, I was talking in El Dorado Hills some while ago at a, at a place, and I looked. And they, it was in a pizza place, and, I, and they said, "What do you want to drink?" And I looked at the beer list, and there was nothing less than six and a half percent alcohol. And I was driving to the other side of Sacramento afterwards. And I said, "I don't want that," you know. So, um, what I hope was going to happen is that there is going to be a full range to choose from, mm-hmm. um, from the, the the threes, mid threes, fours, right the way through to the big foots, long may that mm-hmm. be celebrated. Um, but it's, it's going to be n- an absence of gimmicks. The, the, the last thing in the world that I like is gimmicks um, <laughs> and, and stupidity and putting wacky things into beer, bizarre ingredients in beer. So what I'm hoping is that the brewers will continue to celebrate the rich diversity that is possible from um, from the wholesome materials that they're used to using. I think there's a lot of evidence that that's probably exactly what's going to happen. If between uh, post-prohibition and now, we've mostly been dominated by industrial lager and light lager, and only in the last 
you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40, 40 years. Um, but no, because even for the first, I don't know what, 10 or 20, you were still too hoppy or too this or too that. So only in the last like recent amount of time are we becoming, uh, I was thinking about it during your question, um, more sophisticated. So it's not just that our our palate changes or that we want the next big thing. I don't think that's the only thing that's happening. I think we've actually just become a little more sophisticated the more we learn about fermentation and beer um, and from our brewmasters, like us consumers learn too. So I think, Charlie, you're going to get what you ask for. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. Thank you to Ken Grossman and Charlie Bamforth. Uh, this Sierra Nevada team, thank you, Danielle, for having me so much. I appreciate it. Um, and, and Brian, thanks, thanks everyone for being here. So uh, cheers. Have another beer. Be safe tonight. <laughs>